Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move and a very happy International Women's Day, the annual event that celebrates women's achievements in society, but also draws attention to the still deep inequalities all around the world. This year's theme, Digital, Digital Innovation, how digital technologies can help advance women's rights and promote greater gender equality. And joining us today to talk about the promise and the significance of International Women's Day, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwila, the Director General of the World Trade Organization. The underlying message, as always, better gender equality translates to good economics. And from an important message on Women's Day to higher interest rates in play, Jay Powell rattling investors during testimony in front of Congress on Tuesday, the Fed chair warning that borrowing costs will rise further and stay higher if the data continues to demand it. This means Friday's jobs report and next week's consumer price data will likely decide whether the Federal Reserve sticks with a quarter of a percentage point rate hike at its next meeting or ramps up to a more aggressive half a percentage point move. Remember, history shows that the higher interest rates go, the greater the likelihood of U.S. recession and sizable job losses too. U.S. stocks took fright, as you would imagine, on Powell's prognosis. I'm actually not sure why, because I think the data is pretty clear. It's resilient. Though, remember, in early February, he was admittedly talking about disinflationary trends. And of course, since then, inflation has proved sticky. Powell has the power to affect trading once again today when he appears in U.S. Congress for a second day running. For the moment, U.S. futures and Europe, as you can see, they're holding relatively steady. But just released numbers show U.S. private sector jobs growth still strong in February. This is good news, but of course it complicates the inflation picture. More on the power of Powell later on in the show. But first... Once again, we begin in Ukraine, where the head of the Wagner mercenary group is claiming a major victory in Bakhmut. He says his fighters now control the eastern part of the city. And he posted a video message for Ukraine's president telling him to evacuate children and the elderly from the area. Melissa Bell is in Kyiv with the latest. Melissa, we have to be very careful what he says and what this um, this Wagner group alleges on social media, but we know the situation there remains bleak. Uh, that's right, uh, Julia. And what we'd seen in the last couple of days were Wagner mercenaries really inching closer towards the centre of town. We'd managed to geolocate those images of them planting their flag at a World War II memorial, confirming the fact uh, that they were moving uh, westwards from the river and therefore managing to take more eastern parts of Bakhmut. And that chilling video that you refer to, Evgeny Prigozhin speaking from in front of that World War II monument, we've seen him, as you suggest, Julia, these last few days in and around Bakhmut, usually claiming to be closer towards the centre than he really was. This time he does appear to be uh, relatively close to the city centre and that very chilling message, not only to evacuate the civilians, but for Ukraine to send in more of its able-bodied men, suggesting let's uh, see this, let's fix this here and now, his men against the Ukrainians. And it comes, Julia, 
even as Western officials have been explaining the prominent role that Wagner mercenaries have indeed been playing in those Russian advances in Bakhmut, really leading the charge, supported by regular force artillery. Sometimes that's not been coming through, and that, they say, is what's been behind some of uh, Evgeny Prigozhin's uh, more emotional outbursts these last few days and less than subtle messages towards the Russian defense uh, minister, Sergei Shoigu. Uh, but certainly uh, now, despite the toll that the fighting continues to take on them. And Ukrainian forces are saying they've killed 100 Russian soldiers in the course of the last 24 hours as those attacks have continued. Uh, despite those uh, losses, it does uh, seem to be uh, a question of time now, Julia, as to when Ukraine will announce a tactical retreat. Hmm. Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that report. And in a CNN exclusive, Ukraine's president has invited the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives to visit Ukraine, saying support from the U.S. remains crucial, even as some Republicans have voiced opposition to sending more aid. Vladimir Zelensky spoke to my colleague Wolf Blitzer, thanking the United States for its support so far, but once again saying more needs to be done. House uh, Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House of Representatives here in Washington, Kevin McCarthy says he supports Ukraine, but doesn't support what he calls a blank check, a blank check for Ukraine. That criticism is being echoed by former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, possible leading contenders for the Republican presidential nomination. How worried are you, President Zelensky? How worried are you about this trend among some Republicans that it could threaten the flow of support to Ukraine? No, Popersi. Firstly, I would like to thank um, the bipartisan uh, support of Ukraine. It's very important. Recently, I had a, a meeting with the representatives of the uh, Republican Party, and I'm uh, thankful to a, a congressman who visited uh, Ukraine. They they told me that they want to support um, Ukraine uh, very much like the Democrats. We don't want to slow down. We have a different approach. We want to give more. And now, but not dragging it forever. That was their signal. We don't care about the uh, support, uh, the science support, as long as it's powerful and constant. I think that uh, Speaker McCarthy, he never visited uh, Kiev or Ukraine. And uh, I think it would uh, help him with his position. When you come to us, when the uh, Democrats and Republicans come to us, they see the supply uh, routes, every shell, every bullet, every Every dollar, uh, Mr. McCarthy, he has to come here to see how we work, what's happening here, what war caused us, which uh, people are fighting now, who fighting now, uh, and then after that, uh, make your assumptions. Ukraine is denying any involvement in the sabotage attack on the Nord Stream gas pipelines last year. It follows media reports citing new intelligence that a pro-Ukrainian group may have been to blame. Sam Abdelaziz is on the story for us. Summer. it seems like everybody's cautious or furious. The German government saying being very cautious about this. The Kremlin spokesperson calling it coordinated manipulation and the Ukrainian government denying it. What more do we know about this so-called intelligence? 
Yes, yeah, so this new reporting really adds more questions than really gives us any answers about a really big mystery that's been confounding investigators now for a month. And that is the question as to who is responsible for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. Remember, September last year, these two crucial pipelines were, investigators believe, attacked with explosives. Uh, these two pipelines were left with four holes ripping through them from these powerful explosives again in the Baltic Sea. Since that time, three separate investigations have been launched. Uh, Germany, Danish and Swedish investigators all independently trying to get to the bottom of what happened. A reminder of what the Nord Stream pipeline is. It's this crucial pipeline that brings natural gas from Russia into Germany, into mainland Europe. At the time of these explosions, Nord Stream Pipeline 1 was not in use. It was under maintenance, according to the Kremlin. And the second one was under construction. Still, it had major repercussions. Now, the New York Times saying that intelligence reviewed by U.S. officials, and again, this is the New York Times is reporting, intelligence reviewed by U.S. officials show that a pro-Ukrainian group one that is not affiliated with the Kyiv government, could have been behind the attack. Now, this turns the narrative on its head, Julia, because for months now, the belief among the intelligence community is, or was, that Russia stood to benefit from the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline. Now, the reaction to this has been swift. Ukraine has dismissed it, as you mentioned. Russia has dismissed it, as you mentioned. NATO has said it's too soon to tell. These investigations are still very much underway. And Germany, having an update on its investigation today, also warning caution. I'm going to just update you quickly on the German investigation today. Germany's prosecutors office saying that they've been able to identify a boat that potentially could have carried the explosions uh, during this incident. That is a German boat that's been identified by those prosecutors. They're still looking into it, but they say that six members, six people were on that boat, including divers, and that they were using falsified documents. I know I'm confusing this even more, but Julia, that's the point. It is absolutely confounding investigators, and in some ways it has a minimal impact at this point. Europe has worked to wean itself off Russian oil and gas. Perhaps the explosions on the Nord Stream pipelines only accelerated that process, but it does show how much Europe has had to come to terms with living without Russian oil. Julia? Yes, more questions than answers, um, as you well explained, I think, there. And uh, these media reports just further muddying the water. Um, Sama, great to have you with us. Thank you. Sama Abdelaziz there. Now, violent protests have erupted in Georgia's capital after lawmakers moved a step closer to passing a bill that rights groups say would curtail basic freedoms. Police used water cannon and tear gas after some of the crowd that you can see there threw stones and petrol bombs. The bill, which lawmakers approved on first reading Tuesday, requires some organisations that receive foreign funding to register as, quote, foreign agents. There are now fears it could be a bar to closer ties with the EU. Don't be surprised, China. That's the message from the U.S. ambassador to Japan. In an exclusive interview with CNN, Rahm Emanuel said China's aggression in the region is uniting neighboring nations against Beijing. Mark Stewart joins us now from Japan. Mark, great timing on this interview and a fascinating conversation. And, of course, coming just a couple of days after the new foreign minister in China warned of conflict and confrontation with the United States if the U.S. doesn't change its path. The message from the ambassador here seems to be this is about far more than just the United States. 
Absolutely, Julia. I think that Ambassador Emmanuel was very frank with us. He was very blunt. I mean, clearly he views Japan. Clearly the U.S. views Japan as an ally. Yet he did portray China as, as an aggressor. Let's first tackle this China question and some of the rhetoric that we have been hearing. Uh, here's part of our interview, part of our discussion from the ambassador's official residence here in Tokyo. China is going to have to realize if you want to be a respected, which is what they want, leader of the world, you have to actually respect the people you're interlocking with. You cannot constantly have one, two, one hammer. That is, they have had a confrontation or near confrontation with multiple countries in the region consistently. So the, those comments come on the heels of, as you mentioned, some very pointed comments from, from China's new foreign minister. Uh, we're hearing accusations from Beijing that the U.S. is trying to orchestrate, create a NATO-style alliance here in Asia. This is a very uh, important time in, in, here in Japan, also a very transitionary time here in Japan, as we have seen Japan's military really double down on military spending. It's a shift because Japan has a, has a constitution that's, that's rooted in self-defense and pacifism. And this is a relatively new, new direction, especially as it, it announces plans to perhaps purchase Tomahawk missiles. We talked to the ambassador about the changing dynamics here in Asia. He gives a lot of credit to President Biden. Take a listen to that part of our conversation. He has brought a level of energy and, uh, to alliances and to allies that was absent. Uh, that has given our allies confidence, like Japan, to increase the defense budget, to be more active on the diplomatic uh, arena and stage. Finally, Julia, the ambassador does not feel that diplomacy is dead despite this very tense environment. He points to a recent agreement between Japan and South Korea to resolve a decades-long dispute over some labor issues that, that, again, go way back in time, a dispute that has ca caused a big emotional scar on this part of the world. It has had an a diplomatic effect, an economic effect, yet the ambassador feels that if Japan and South Korea can resolve it, it gives much broader hope for the region, Julia. Yes, and hopefully uh, cool some of the rhetoric as well, perhaps surrounding this. Mark Stewart, great job. Thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead as we celebrate women leaders around the world and beyond. The head of the World Trade Organization tells me what more has to be done to achieve better gender equality. That and more next. Welcome back to First Move. International Women's Day is an opportunity to recognize and celebrate the major role women play in leadership and beyond around the world. But in terms of leadership, Janet Yellen leads the U.S. Treasury. At the helm of the European Central Bank, we have Christine Lagarde. And the International Monetary Fund is headed up by Kristalina Georgieva. She told CNN this morning how this changes the reality for women everywhere. Having more women in position of authority brings more diversity in decision-making, and the result is 
we make better decisions. Um, I uh, still uh, recognize that we have a long way to go, Poppy. Uh, today, only 5% of CEOs of big companies are women. And uh, we want to see more of this coming uh, in the years ahead. Gender equality is good economics. Yes, more female leadership required. Now, our next guest is a widely respected international finance expert who has shattered many glass ceilings. Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwila is the first woman and first African to lead the World Trade Organization. She was Nigeria's first female finance minister and its first woman foreign minister too. Now, just before we went on air, she told me today what International Women's Day means to her. Dr. Ngozi? Happy International Women's Day. A huge honour to have you on the show. Explain what this day means to you personally, but also as the female lead of a big global institution too. Well, thank you, Julian, and happy International Women's Day uh, to you. And I I just want to say that watching your show and your enthusiasm uh, is one of the highlights of looking at CNN. So thank you. Um, I want to say that uh, International Women's Day is highly significant. First of all, I'm very happy that the world and uh, the UN and everyone has seen fit to allocate a day when we think about women and what their economic, social, uh, and other situation is in the world. So it's highly significant. For me here at the WTO, it is a day to think about how are we doing with respect to trying to empower women in trade? Um, How do we make their lives better? How do we get women, who most of whom uh, see, who own small and medium enterprises, to participate, be more included in global value chains? Um, internally, how are we doing at the WTO itself in terms of improving the position and lives of women and moving towards gender equity? So this is what it means to me, a day to think about women in the world and how to enhance the lives of women through trade and also to think internally of improving our situation. I love that. You know, it's interesting. I, I just spoke to um, the activist, incredible woman, Mulala Yousafzai, and she said not educating women is a $30 trillion loss to the global economy. The way I see it, and to your point about enthusiasm, it's also a $30 trillion opportunity. Can you quantify how we improve the situation for women, whether that's in business, whatever the trade links, the supply chains, and what the opportunity to the global economy is of of doing this better with greater equality. Let me start with one very simple and important statistic. Our studies have found that women who trade, who export, earn 2.8 times, almost three times more than those who sell only in the domestic market. That is highly significant, three times more. So that's a huge opportunity. If we can get more women-owned enterprises participating in global or even regional trade, we can double or triple their incomes. And that means the household welfare is much improved. Children, more children can go to school, uh, you know, and the community is improved and the nation is improved. So that's the kind of opportunity we are looking at, doubling or tripling uh, the incomes of women who are involved. Then how do we try to do this? We have a unique opportunity now, Julia. We have seen 
because of the multiple crises we are facing, uh, the vulnerability of supply chains, the concentration of manufacturing of certain products. And people are saying, well, this means that globalization is bad, the multilateral trade is not working. No, it means that we need to think of a different type of globalization. The first type lifted a billion people out of poverty. It was disinflationary, making goods cheaper for consumers, but it didn't include everyone. Poor people in rich countries were left behind. Poor countries were left behind. Can we reimagine a new type of globalization, what we call re-globalization, that would include those left behind, which is women. Women have been left behind. How do we include them in these global value chains? How do we get poor countries in? So this is the opportunity. You talked about opportunity. I don't see these things as, you know, as a, there are problems, yes, or challenges, but there are huge opportunities to use it, to bring those excluded, including women, and also at the same time, build re global resilience by diversifying our supply chains and deconcentrating manufacturing to those countries that didn't benefit and those regions that did not. Mm. You tweeted, I know you were there when the G20 foreign ministers met. I mean, you're talking about the vast proportion of, of global trade. For better or worse, we'd like it to be more diverse and, and broader than that. But if you could ask those nations to take one step and they weren't allowed to refuse you, what step would you have them take to address the how of all the things that you were just talking about? What, what's one thing that they could do today to improve the situation? One thing they could surely do is to signal to their business sectors um, that investing in these other geographies and regions that were left behind that have the right business environment, Julia, I insist on that, but there are many countries that have, that have been left out. Signal to them that it would be good for business to diversify there. I keep hearing that diversification is China plus one. And when they say China plus one, it's China plus Indonesia, China plus India. And I always say, what about China plus Morocco? What about Rwanda? What about Nigeria? What about uh, Brazil or Argentina or Bangladesh? There are other places that they can incentivize their businesses to also look at. So that is the one ask I would have, to, uh, have of these uh, countries. Yeah, and those countries too have to make it accessible as well for, for people to feel that they're confident enough to expand those trade links in particular too. You mentioned China, and I do want to talk about that because many of the challenges that require addressing in the global economy, they need two of the biggest economies on board with each other. And, and I look at the geopolitical tensions I look at the trade links, particularly in the first two months of this year, and I worry. How concerned are you that the geopolitics that we've already seen and are continuing to see escalate spill and have spillover effects to the detriment, ongoing detriment of the global economy? I'm quite worried, uh, Julia. I'm quite worried. I would not like to see these geopolitical tensions spill into more protectionism or, or anything worse. Now, let me step back a bit and say, look, Whilst there's a lot of tension in the air, we also need to look at the numbers sometimes. And if you look at the number for two-way trade between China and the U.S. for last year, it's about $690 billion or $693 in, the, in that neighborhood. This is as high 
or even slightly higher than it was during the peak in 2018 before the pandemic. So the numbers on the ground show that trade continues apace. However, as you said, the rhetoric sometimes is getting so hot and the tensions that my fear is, I hope this does not really start having an impact on the volumes and the value of trade that we see on the ground. And that kind of worries me. I want us to realize that between the two powers, they can have strategic competition between them, but also know when there will be strategic cooperation and not to go into a situation where that strategic, strategic cooperation becomes impossible. Because then it would be very difficult if you divide into two trading blocks, one block that goes there with China, the other with the US, it would be very difficult. The cost of fragmenting into two trading blocks is a 5% loss of global GDP in the long term. We've actually done the work to look at what it would cost. That's enormous. That's enormous. And so we can't afford this kind of uh, effect. It would be even double-digit losses for developing countries and emerging markets. So the negative spillovers of this happening, it just is not something that the world would want to contemplate. Um, I think you deliver stark warnings incredibly well. I feel at times we could have you in the room banging heads together and um, we'd get far more action. Um, very quickly, and speaking of that, um, how confident are you that the crucial Black Sea Grain Initiative deal is extended? Because again, I know you have a sense of all the players and what they want and what's desperately required. Julie, I think that it is crucial we do extend it. Um, and I think it would be enormously difficult if it were not extended. First of all, for Ukraine, this is one way that it ensures it continues to get its own revenue to be able to survive and pay some of its bills. But very importantly for the outside world, if it does not continue, we have a situation in which food prices continue to be high and, and uh, many countries depend on this region for food and fertilizer. So it's essential, I hope, that the Secretary General and, and the Turkish government, uh, the President of Turkey, we're working very hard on this, and we are very grateful to them. I hope they can make sure that uh, the breakthrough continues and, and we see this uh, you know, continuing to be open. A powerful woman and a powerful voice on International Women's Day. Now, coming up after the break, from patient pal to prudent pal, and now perhaps punisher pal, markets under pressure, after the Fed Chair's latest pivot, what it all means for investors and, of course, consumers too. Next. Welcome back to First Move, the day after a Powell pullback on Wall Street. U.S. stocks are holding steady, though, however, as you can see there, after yesterday's more than 1% fall. Blame it all on Fed Chair Powell's more hawkish message before Congress, the Fed Chair warning that interest rates could head higher than current market projections if inflation remains sticky and job gains don't moderate. Powell facing tough questioning, too, from Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, as you might expect, on the consequences of higher interest rates. Chair Powell, if you hit your projections, do you know how many people who are currently working, going about their lives, will lose their jobs? I don't... Uh... I don't have that number in front of me. I will say it's, it's not, it's it's not just an intended consequence. It's well, not but it is, and it's in your report, and that would be about 2 million people who would lose their jobs. If you could speak directly to the 2 million, 
hardworking people who have decent jobs today, who you're planning to get fired over the next year, what would you say to them? I would explain to people more broadly that that inflation is extremely high and it's hurting the working people of this country badly, all of them, not just two million of them, but all of them are suffering. Hey, Pickle, have a position for Powell. Rahel Solomon joins me. Rahel, I have my head in my hands listening to that. As he said, it's unintended consequences. It's the unfortunate fallout, the job losses from trying to contain inflation, which is also very painful for people. But I do feel like he needs a, a better answer there than, than not knowing. Well, Julia, it's a great point because Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, has been very vocal over the last year or so how she feels about the Fed's aggressive rate hike. So her concerns are not necessarily new. And yet you could see in that clip there Chairman Powell becoming a bit defensive about the unintended consequences of fighting inflation. And the pickle that you point out, Julia, is that on the one hand, if the Federal Reserve doesn't do enough, it runs the risk, of course, of inflation remaining high for longer or perhaps even picking back up, gaining steam On the other hand, if you do too much, you run the risk of unnecessarily causing a recession, which is what Senator Warren was getting at there. The problem for the Fed, however, is that the data just isn't cooperating. We can show you just how many Fed rate hikes we've already seen over the last year or so. Eight, in fact, I think we're showing you here seven. But the problem is that the data isn't cooperating. Inflation hasn't come down nearly as much as the Fed would like, nearly as much as U.S. consumers would like for that matter. And job growth has remained quite high, aggressively high. In fact, Julia, we just got some data this morning about an hour ago from private payroll provider ADP showing that the U.S. economy added 242,000 jobs in the month of February hotter than expected. And when you look at the gains, really the strongest gains, Julia, categories in areas like leisure and hospitality, adding a blockbuster 83,000 jobs, manufacturing adding 43,000. So to the Fed's point, you know, it is not necessarily trying to cause joblessness, but seeing job growth like this, you know, really creates concerns that those strong wage growth, the strong jobs market could be fueling consumer spending and not really creating an environment where inflation starts to cool. I should say, Julia, that Chairman Powell is back on the Hill today for day two. So perhaps even more pickles to come. Yeah. Day two of being a political punch bag, because quite frankly, yeah. that's that's what it was. Let's be honest. And we should be celebrating good day to, to your point, though. And you explained it perfectly. Um, it's just a difficult position to be in when you've got the, the two sides to balance here. And, and his message, I think, was very clear. And I, I do think investors should have understood it based on the data that we're seeing. Unfortunately, yeah. it does look like rates are going to have to go higher than they first anticipated and likely to stay high for longer. It's a great point, Julia. You know, I saw an op-ed last week that said investors are hoping for a miracle when, when they, what, what they really need is a reality check, right? I mean, as you say, it's great news for the economy, not so great news for the financial markets. But I think the Fed has been uh, tried to be very clear, at least for the last year or so, that it's not done yet. Uh, and in terms of what we see with the Fed in a few weeks, you know, just a few months ago, Julia, the, the upper range for the federal funds target was 5.1 percent. We're now looking at closer to 5.5, 5.75. I've even seen some estimates that Fed funds could go as high as 6%. So a lot can change and a lot has already changed. Yes, reality checks all round. Rahel, thank you so much for that. Okay, coming up now on First Move, growing potential or returning tide, the CEO of Impossible Foods on the state of the plant-based meat industry. Next.
Welcome back to First Move. More protein and less fat. That's the promise from plant-based meat producer Impossible Foods as it launches a new product called Impossible Beef Light. The company has already unveiled three new plant-based chicken, in inverted commas, products in the last few weeks. And it does come, as some in the media certainly are questioning the ongoing relevance of the industry, calling it, in certain cases, a food fad. Quote, the criticism led Impossible Foods to take out a full-page advert in the New York Times, giving a bit of pushback. The firm says it also saw record revenue last year with more than 50% sales growth at supermarkets and in grocery stores. The CEO of Impossible Foods is Peter McGuinness, and he joins us now. Peter, fantastic to have you on the show. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you would argue that the column inches dedicated to the so-called fall of, of fake meats um, outweighs the reality that you're certainly seeing. Talk us through what you are seeing. Sure, Julia. Thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, we took out an ad because we thought a lot of the media were writing opinion pieces. And so we just wanted to put our opinion out there. You know, one opinion deserves another opinion (laughs) and really share both sides of the story and let the consumer decide. Um, The plant-based category, as it's defined by Nielsen, um, which which includes legacy players um, around garden burgers and things like that that have been around 25 years, as well as, you know, players like Beyond Meat and us, which are more meat replacements, is plateauing. So that is a fact, right? So you're not seeing the growth rates that you once saw a year or two ago. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, there are 206 plant-based players in the U.S., And a lot of those people, a lot of those brands didn't scale. They've come in, they've come out. There's high churn. Some of the legacy players aren't growing as they once were. And some of the new players are not growing as rapidly as they once were. Um, And so category and impossible are two different things. Um, We're the leader in beef in retail. Number one um, plant-based beef product in the entire U.S., and we grew at 50% in retail last year, and we're double digits this year to date. So um, I think we have to separate the two. That said, the industry does have its challenges, right? I think people got a little overexcited early on. I think some assertions and promises and projections might have been a bit rosy. <laughs> um, and I think we have rosy. to own that. Yeah, yeah, I think we have to own that. But to yeah. say it's a fad is frankly ridiculous. I mean, it, it, you know, an $8 billion global fad? I don't think so. Um, and look, 90% of the people that eat our food eat animal products, right? And so that's not a fad. And when we look at our repeats and our growth rates, we certainly don't think it's a fad. That said, there are challenges that we have to overcome um, around scale, around narrative. There's a lot of misconceptions. You know, is the food processed? Uh, is it really good for you? There's awareness challenges, right? 85% of the country's never even heard of Impossible. There are household penetration challenges, um, which are really opportunities in my opinion, 5% household penetration. Um, 95% of people haven't even tried our products yet. This is all solvable through distribution, marketing, advertising. So. I look at these as fundamental opportunities, not as foundational challenges. Okay. So I think our best days are yet to come, but I think we all need to be confident with a good dose of humility as well. Oh, 
So, I mean, you're a better interviewer than me, quite frankly, because all the challenges that I was going to present <laughs> to you have just ticked off. I just tick off all my questions here, nothing left to ask you. There was a word in there, though, that um, you said, and I think it's very important, when you were talking about separating what you're seeing from the broader industry, and you used the word plateau. Are we looking at a plateau for the industry, in your mind, as you said, um, $8 billion? Because the global meat industry is, what, $1 trillion. So it may not be a fad, but are we talking about something that's going to remain a niche or is there still some kind of growth opportunity? Because I think you and I can debate the lack of cleanliness, the sheer level of ingredients, um, the, the, the idea that perhaps um, it's challenged in other ways, perception. But I guess the big question is, are we going to hit peak meat at, at some point soon? And are meat eaters in far greater size than they are today going to transition to plant-based meat products? Because that's the ultimate question I think we have to answer. Yeah, it's a great question, Julia. I think um, I think plateau is a period of time. You know, young and young and unestablished categories have ups and downs. That's just the way it is, right? But look, it's incumbent upon us as an industry to grow the category more, right? We haven't done a good job of communicating the benefits. Beef light, the product we're launching right now, is 75% less saturated fat than lean beef, even more than regular beef. Has 21 grams of protein and, you know, has vitamin B, zinc, tons of minerals, iron, um, and zero cholesterol. So we have not, we, we haven't done three things particularly well. We haven't got the message and we haven't got the distribution to the masses yet, right? It's largely living on the coasts and in upper echelons um, and in academia, and it needs to go more mass and more middle country. That's number one. Number two, we haven't got across the health benefits. If zero cholesterol meat, right, which is incredibly compelling, and 21 grams of protein, so it is nutrient-dense food. The third thing is we've not gotten across the planet benefits. And let's be honest, I mean, our ground meat uses, you know, 92% less water, 90% less land, you know, avoids over 90% um, GHG compared to the animal. And the final piece is we're not going to have enough animal products to feed the population in the future. So there's that. So the, the world will go more and more plant-based. That is undeniable and it's undebatable. How fast, what markets move faster um, is debatable, right? I think, and I then think how point effective three, been, I, yeah. I think point how three, effective we strike been off. Debatable we know we have to eat less meat. Less methane is required. So I'm giving you the point on the planet. Um, on the health, it comes down to me a, a question of whether you've got the product right. Because the first thing that people hit me with when I talk about these products is the whole list of ingredients. And they're like, this is not clean food. And we're being pushed by the media, by doctors to say we have to eat cleaner food, less processed food. And this looks to be far more processed, I think, than, than many other foods, certainly basic meat products for the most part. Have you got the product yeah. right, Peter? I think as much as the messaging yeah, I is important. Really <laughs> You're full of great questions today, and they're hard questions, and I think these are questions that we have to answer. So, uh, you know, I admire you for asking them. 
have we gotten the product right? I think we have a good product right now. And I think our journey is good to great. And our product right now is better than the animal because it's equal protein with 75% less saturated fat and zero cholesterol. Now, are there a list of ingredients? Yes, because we're mirroring taste, texture, flavor of an animal product using plants, which is not easy. But to find processed, and this has been a word that's been bantied about, um, and a lot of it's been by the animal industry, which is highly coordinated and, and well-invested. Um, processed food, first of all, most things you buy in grocery stores have are processed. That's number one. Number two, the core definition of processed is high sugar, high fat, okay, with a load of artificial ingredients. You know, I think a Twinkie's processed. So our food is protein-packed, nutrient-dense, has vitamins and minerals in it. So I don't define our food as processed. That said, we're working on beef 3.0 and beef 4.0. I don't think we're going to go iPhone 14, <laughs> but we're going to continue. <laughs> they roll it out, you know, my we're going to continuously improve our product. We need to continuously improve our products, right? Um, they're already good, but they can be better. And I think that's another thing that we all need to realize as a industry. If you want more people who favor eating animal products, you got to continuously improve your plant-based products, right? Because the audience is not plant, it's not the $8 billion plant-based audience. The audience is the $1.4 trillion animal industry, right? And that's the addressable market that's really exciting. And that's the market that if we penetrate, will do the most good for the planet. Yeah, again. I can't argue with that. I have a question on the Redditors, though, on that New York Times article. Did you pay them? And sure. the only reason why I'm asking is because there was a point about the lobbyists, the meat lobbyists. And I take your point about them having great influence, I'm sure, in all sorts of things around the world. But were the Redditors in that article paid? No, they were not. No. Nope. So they were just honestly responding to. to they were the point honestly that you responding. Made. Okay, good. I think that's grab. important too. Yeah. yeah. You get yeah. balance yeah, on this show. We, we have big questions and I'm out of time. We're going we're gonna to continue this conversation. Um, the planetary to, benefits, though, are clear. And I think we have to and we all have to ask questions of ourselves. Um, I agree. Yeah. Thank you for coming on, Peter. Thank you, Julia. Have a good day. We'll, 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 we'll talk about um, impossible, impossible Foods 14, 14.0 <laughs> in the evolution of these products. I love it. I love it. Cool. Thank, Thank you. you. Peter McGuinness there. All right, coming up, Elon Musk's sudden handbrake turn after a public Twitter spat with a former employee. We'll hear the chief executive's apology next. Welcome back to First Move. Elon Musk has apologised to a sacked Twitter employee with a disability after initially mocking him on the platform. Startup founder Haley Thorleason took to Twitter to ask the chief executive directly to let him know if he'd been fired. The Icelander said he'd been locked out of his accounts, but the company wouldn't confirm he'd been let go. Anna Stewart is back with the latest twist. And I think you have to set the scene briefly for people, the viewers that weren't watching us yesterday. Uh, he asked... Elon Musk about his job. They then had a back and forth. And then the, the, he came back with a very eloquent response to Elon Musk yesterday on Twitter. 
the back and forth was really quite explosive. I mean, this is a man mm. trying to work out whether he still works for Twitter. He says the head of HR at Twitter doesn't even know if he works there. So he goes to Elon Musk on Twitter and says, hey, am I still employed? And that sparks this conversation of Elon Musk asking what he did at Twitter, sending a laughing emojis in the response to that saying that he was fired, and then saying perhaps the worst part of all, saying that uh, Harley had used a disability as an excuse, saying it prevented him from typing while he was simultaneously simultaneously tweeting up a storm. Now, to this, Halley went into great depth about his disability, muscular dystrophy. He has been using a wheelchair for 20 years, and he struggles with his fingers. So there was a huge response on Twitter, as you could imagine, against Elon Musk to this, including one photographer who had actually worked with Halley and said he could vouch for him, saying his work ethic was next level, his talent and humility was world class. And then we got this response from Elon Musk. And I have to say, of all of the tweets that we had in the last sort of 48 hours, this is perhaps the most surprising coming from Elon Musk. He said, based on your comment, I just did a video call with Halley to figure out what's real versus what I was told. It's a long story. Better to talk to people than communicate via tweet. And he went on to say... I would like to apologize to Halley for my misunderstanding of his situation. It was based on things I was told that were untrue or in some cases true, but not meaningful. He is considering remaining at Twitter. There is a lot to break down in all of that. Is this the pivotal moment when Elon Musk decides not to troll people on Twitter and use his words perhaps on a, on a video call or a phone? Remains to be seen. What do you think, Julia? I think on International Women's Day, we can call this completely manhandled. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll get into trouble for it. I think I think it raises big questions once again, and we've had them many times about his uh, leadership style and how he handled this. Um, I think you raised very good points about sort of the legal implications of this uh, and um, the mere culpa that eventually came, which I think was expected, Anna, quite frankly. However the situation went down, whatever the worker does or doesn't do... Um, there were all sorts of warning flags in this, and I think apologising like this was um, was the only way to go. I do think it's interesting that he suggested that perhaps talking is better than tweeting. <laughs> that was my favourite As the CEO bit. of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Twitter platform, guess what? It's not good for everything, and even Elon Musk now recognises that. There were a few things in this that I, you know, question. Was this real remorse? Was this legal pressure? Was it a mixture of the two? We will never probably know. Will this change the way Musk interacts on Twitter? That we have to wait and see. Uh, Another intriguing part, though, of this apology is when Musk says he is considering remaining at Twitter. I mean, I believe he was fired yesterday, but perhaps he will remain. Lots of people on Twitter, of course, saying, don't do it. Don't go back to the abusive relationship of your former employer. Nothing yet from Harley, so it'll be very interesting. I am watching his Twitter page today to see whether there are any further developments. Yeah, Elon Musk did put out a tweet before the apology as well, talking about... um, having some lack of faith in humanity. So let's, um, let's hope the human side of him felt regret here because, you know, he's a funster and he's humorous and he has a big personality. Let's hope humanity kicked in here. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 